Now, we have been in a series called Reformation, and as we've been thinking about what it means to, to come together as a church after a long, difficult year of 2020 and social distancing, we're wanting to remind ourselves of the DNA of our church, both what it is and what we want it to be. So we spent two weeks already looking at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus, that is, the forgiveness of sins secured by Jesus' death and resurrection. And so this week, we're taking another step and looking at another core value That is the community of Jesus. And so uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you find your way there, we're going to be working our way through a good chunk of that uh, chapter there. But before we get there, I wanted to just reference this study by the Foundation of Economic Education. It was a Harvard study, an article in a Harvard study. And the title was, An Epidemic of Loneliness is Spreading Across America. And this is part of what it said. Loneliness among Americans has been growing in recent years, but the policy response to the COVID-19 pandemic has drastically exasperated the problem. So they're saying, basically, this was something that was going on, and then the policies that were put in place to help slow the spread of COVID uh, ended up exasperating the problem, which many of us would totally understand. They said this, more recent research showed that loneliness was worsening prior to the pandemic, In 2018, a joint Kaiser Family Foundation and Economist survey found that one in five Americans often or almost always felt lonely or socially isolated. And results from a large-scale Cigna report released in January of 2020, last year, found that three out of five Americans reported being lonely. Harvard researchers criticized what they call this age of hyper-individualism, saying that we must restore our commitment to each other and the common good. I don't know about you, but when COVID first hit and we had to shut things down and the government was encouraging people to, to be socially distant and just help flatten the curve so hospital, hospitals weren't overwhelmed, I thought, you know what, um, I can do this. And I thought this was going to be a short-lived kind of thing, as many of you did as well. But kind of as it dragged on, I was like, all right, I'm ready for social interaction again. And I want things to be back to normal. And I'm an introvert by nature. It surprises a lot of people because I get up every week and speak. I don't actually like public speaking. (laughs) But I'm an introvert, and I'm at home with a really good book. But after a little bit, I was like, you know what? I want to see people again. I want to be around people again. I don't want to just see people through my screens. But even before that, there is this, what, what researchers call this age of hyper-individualism. And so the question I want us to ask as we get ready to look at Acts chapter 2 is, in what ways has this age of hyper-individualism affected me? Not just me, but, but you as well. This is the question I want us to think about. If it's true that we do live in an age of hyper-individualism, What does that mean for me? How has it shaped me? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, and uh, we're going to dial in on verse 42, but I want to set up verse 42 by showing you what came before it. And we're going to see that the gospel of Jesus, the good news about the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, formed a community of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus formed a community of Jesus. And so what we're going to read about happened on the day of Pentecost. This was 50 days after the resurrection. There were many Jewish people on pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. 
And so the day of Pentecost has ever since been known as the day when Jesus launched his message and his movement into the world, entrusting it to his community of faith. And so Acts chapter 2 begins like this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That is, the disciples who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus had come together in one place. And we're told in verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Let me pause here for just a second. What's going on? The disciples were gathered together in one place. And the Spirit of God descended upon them. And the way that Luke, the author of this book, described it, is it seemed like there were these, these tongues of fire that came and rested upon them. And these men, many of whom were uneducated followers of Jesus, began speaking in languages they didn't know. And people are hearing them speak the words of the gospel in their own dialect and in their own language. And this is what it says in verse 7. They were all amazed, that is the crowd, they were all amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed to one another, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So here are these people speaking in other languages, some of which they understood because they were their native languages, but others just mocked and said, these guys are drunk. They've been drinking too much wine. And this is how Peter responded in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. They haven't been drinking. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Joel lived hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And this was spoken through the prophet Joel. In these last days it shall be, God declares, that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Drop down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, 
they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word, that is the gospel, the news about Jesus, those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. That must have been amazing to see. See these disciples speaking in, in foreign languages, people understanding it, asking what this means. Peter saying, this is exactly what God had told you would come about. That God would pour out his spirit upon people. And at the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 3,000 people put their trust and faith in him. Verse 42, this is the verse we're going to dial in on. And they, who are the they? Those 3,000 who came to believe in Jesus and were baptized, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now that was a lot to take in, I know. Highlighting some of those verses there in Acts chapter 2. But what I want you to see is that there was a work of God that launched the community of God. The gospel of Jesus was being preached and proclaimed, and that created a community of Jesus. We can put it this way. The Spirit of God used the preaching of the gospel of Jesus to create a community of Jesus that was devoted to one another. Let's dial in on verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's four things that are highlighted here, and we could spend really a, a, a message on each one of these, uh, unpacking it. But I want us to dial in on the fact that one of the results of these people coming to believe the gospel of Jesus was they were devoted to the community of Jesus, the fellowship. So let's just dial in on the Greek for just a moment. That word devoted, what, ha- what comes to your mind when you think of someone who's devoted to something? It could be to a sport or to a career. What happens? They pour their attention into it, right? That's exactly what that word means. To keep close company with, to be intentionally engaged in, to be earnest towards something. And they were earnest towards the fellowship. That word fellowship in the Greek simply means a shared life or life together, a common life. In fact, the New English Bible translates it like this. They met constantly to hear the apostles teach and to share the common life. I want to just highlight exactly kind of how this worked out. They were devoted to the fellowship or, or life together. And it looked like moving toward one another in intentional relationship. Let's jump over to the book of 1 John where the apostle John, 
said, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, that you may have fellowship with us. You may have common life with us. We may have life together. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here, the Apostle John says, one of the reasons we told you about the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection is so that we can be joined together to experience new life together, new fellowship with one another. So they moved towards one another in intentional relationship, but they also moved for one another in willing sacrifice. Did you catch this when we read through those verses? We're told in verses 44 and 45 of chapter 2 in Acts, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. You know, there's this phrase in Spanish, mi casa es tu casa. It's a a welcome. It's a word of hospitality. Come and enjoy our house and our life together. It's an invitation. That's exactly what was going on. They weren't speaking Spanish at that time because Spanish hadn't developed. But that's what they're saying to one another. You are a part of this fellowship. We're devoted to this. How can I help you? That person's in need. Let's go help that person. Let's offload and have a garage sale and and give the proceeds to this family that's struggling. They were together. They were moving toward one another, intentional fellowship, and they were moving for one another in willing sacrifice. So let me kind of bring this to a point here, my friends. We are designed by God to flourish as a part of a community of Jesus marked by our devotion to one another. For those of us who embrace Jesus, who are not merely fans of Jesus, but followers of Jesus, we come to understand that we are designed by God to flourish as a part of a community of Jesus marked by devotion to one another. To put it another way, we're not meant to be lone rangers. We're not meant to to do this Christian life by ourselves. And so if I could put it in a slightly different way, our default mode should be we instead of me. That's the default mode of that early Christian community. And sometimes you hear Christians talking about how they want to get back to the way the early church did things and kind of just throw off all the the stuff that has been built up and accumulated over the centuries and get back to the beginning. What happened at the beginning? The gospel of Jesus created a community of Jesus whose default mode was we instead of me. The Apostle Paul roots this community in love by telling us in the book of Romans chapter 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's no way that our default mode can be me or we instead of me. We can't be devoted to one another if the love of God is not filling our hearts and overflowing to one another. Do you remember what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed? He was with his disciples in that upper room and had his last meal with them, and he gave some of his most important teaching and entrusted it to his disciples. And he said to them these words, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is about to be crucified, tortured, killed, brutally, buried, and he's going to rise again. But he's, he's, at this moment, before all that happens, he's setting his disciples up to understand something very important. 
He's going to entrust his mission to them. And they have to be marked by this one thing. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Not by your politics. Not by your hobbies. Not by your investment portfolio. Not by the camps that Christians tend to break themselves up in. How are people going to know that we belong to Jesus? By the love that we have for one another. So that gospel of Jesus creates a community of Jesus. Yes, people individually had to respond to it, trust and faith, but when they did, they were united to a body of people, a local community of people in which they were devoted to one another. We could put it like this. If we are devoted to the gospel of Jesus, then we should also be devoted to the local community of Jesus as well. So let me see if I can just sharpen this point a little bit more. Mercy Hill is our new family. If we are followers of Jesus, and at this time and this place, we find ourselves among this community of faith, those of you who are watching online as well, we need to be thinking of this group of people as our extended family. Let me introduce you to a little girl named Phoebe. She's a part of the church that we were in in Canada, and I got to watch this little girl grow from this cute little baby to this super shy girl to this outgoing uh, young lady. And one time she had a school project in which she had to talk about her family, and so she put together this little montage and talked about her brothers and her mom and dad and even mentioned they don't have pets because her mom is allergic to animals. And that was a really cute little exercise. But what Phoebe also wanted to do was to talk about another family that she was a part of, and that's this her church family. So part of her project included talking about how she loved going to church camp and how she loved hanging out with Miss Twyla and her friend May Lynn and how they do things. And she even included a picture of, of me and Heather in that. And it just like melted my heart when I saw this. And she just described this as part of her family. And I thought this is entirely appropriate. We want little kids to think of their church as part of their family. But you want, know, else, know what else? We want the big kids in the room to think of Mercy Hill Church as their family as well. In one sense, we could have a project in which we say, tell us about your family. And what we hope happens is that you could say about your family, your, your, your nuclear family, but also what comes to your mind is your church family as well. To put it another way, Mercy Hill Church is not so much an event to go to, but a family to belong to. Do we think about what we're doing together like this? Not just something to go to on a Sunday morning, but something to belong to. And so I want to, to flesh this out just a little bit in asking us to rebel. I want us to rebel against the status quo. That initial community that was launched by the gospel of Jesus looked a certain way. And as that same gospel still continues to form communities of faith all over the world, we need to think about how it launches us into this world as well. So let's rebel against the status quo. And what I want you to do with me is to think about what the status quo is in our society. Remember the, how those Harvard researchers talked about how we live in this hyper-individualized age? Let's think about that and let's rebel against it. So one way we need to rebel against the status quo is that idea of loneliness that was brought up in that study. Sociologists talk about this idea of crowded loneliness. 
how we can be around lots of people, and yet no one really knows us. We can be in this wonderful community that we live in. We can go to, the, to our workplaces and be around people, and we can, we can take classes at A&M and blend and just be surrounded by tens of thousands of people, and yet still be lonely. John Stott had this wonderful quote in his book, The Contemporary Christian. Listen to what he says here. I, I love this so much. God's purpose, we, sw- we say, is not merely to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their loneliness, but to build a church, to create a new society, even a new humanity in which racial, national, social, and sexual barriers have been abolished. People searching for communi- communion, I'm sorry, people searching for community ought to be pouring into our churches, for there are Christian communities all over the world where true, sacrificial, serving, supportive love is to be found, where such Christian love flourishes, its magnetism is almost irresistible. I love that last sentence. Where such Christian love flourishes, its magnetism is almost irresistible. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been a part of a community of faith where you've sensed this kind of magnetism? Where the love of the people just drew you in. I went to a memorial service of an elder of a church in Austin, Texas this last week. It's in a Leander area of Austin Northwest. And this was the church I became a Christian in. And this was one of the founding elders of this church, the Hill Country Bible Church. Some of you may know of it. And just being around these people at this memorial service, I remembered what at first drew me to be interested in Jesus. These people loved well. And I sent a text to my wife and just during, uh, right after that memorial service and just said, the love of Jesus is thick upon these people. The aroma is very enticing. And I just remember, just, it was so good to be in the company of these people, some of which I hadn't seen in 30 years. But they still love Jesus. And their little community that they began, which in a church basically our size, grew and multiplied to where the main church, I think, holds some 3,000 people, and they planted 30 churches around Austin and around the world. Do we know of the kind of love with one another that just draws us in? Another aspect of the status quo is that we're all just crazy busy, right? We, we pack our schedules full. There's so many demands upon our schedule, and, and some of us wear that as a badge of honor. It seems like the more crazy busy we can tell people are, the more important we seem to be. I saw this uh, survey, and it said the average person has just four hours and 26 minutes of free time per week. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Some of you are saying to yourself, oh, I would love to have four hours of free time every week, Right? But the status quo is that we're crazy busy. Dennis Johnson, a professor, asked, are our schedules too full to fit in some fellowship that is more than skin deep? It's a good question. Here's another aspect of the status quo. We love our privacy, don't we? We do. You do. It's okay to admit it. Let me just just prove that to you. When your door knocks, someone knocks on your door, and you're not expecting anyone, 
Is your first thought to be, oh, I wonder who's come to see me today? <laughs> or is it, who has the nerve <laughs> to be disturbing my peace? I'm glad you're laughing, because we know the answer. But what would it mean for us to rebel against our, our prize of privacy? Here's another status quo. We prefer polite distance. We actually don't like people getting too close to us, right? <laughs> we consider ourselves nice people. We even consider ourselves loving people. But we kind of like to keep people at an arm's distance, don't we? I think that's one of the reasons why there's such a love of social media. I'm not one of those guys who dog social media. I'm on social media, not Facebook anymore because it drives me crazy. But there's other accounts that I, I'm involved in, and there are certain benefits to it. But, but listen to this. Social media has certain benefits, no doubt. But it can also be a major distraction, an endless distraction, and a weak substitute for real-time, face-to-face friendship with people. Look, I love social media. I can keep up with friends around the world. But it can give me the illusion that I'm, I'm connecting with people when all I'm doing is, is just keeping up with things going on in their life. We're not having, on average, deep heart-to-heart -heart conversations. We're not encouraging one another. I know that can happen. But hear what I'm saying. My friends, do we prize privacy to such a degree that we'd rather just interact with people on our own terms and we can launch the app and shut it down whenever we want? Or are we willing to rebel against that status quo and actually seek real-time, face-to-face fellowship, friendship, community with one another? Here's another part of the status quo. <laughs> People are messy, right? So we refrain. People are messy. I'm messy. You're messy. People are messy. So sometimes when we risk being involved with other people, it might demand more of us than we initially thought. But you know what? That's okay because God orchestrates those things. And he wants to use you in the life of other people to encourage them and to build them up. But what happens is we can say, yes, we love the idea of community and we love the fact that the gospel creates a fellowship of Jesus but we kind of keep ourselves back from it because people are messy. We don't want to get involved. And I love the quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life in his book, Life Together, which we're getting our, our title of our message today from. He said, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. I remember when I was doing campus ministry here at A&M a number of years ago, and we had a student who came through the, the, the doors of our ministry, spent a couple years with us, then went off and graduated, ended up in Houston. And I followed up with him a year or two later and just checked in on him to see how he was doing. And I asked him if he had found a community of faith to belong to in Houston. And he said, no, there are no good communities of faith in the city of Houston. I won't really go into that conversation while we had there. Now, I can understand if, like, you're in Snook, Texas. <laughs> is there even a church in Snook? I don't know. There probably is a church or two, maybe. And there might be some groups of weird Christians there. I don't know. But in a city of three million, there's not a single community of faith that measures up 
to your idea of what that should be? I'm afraid if that's the case, then you might love your dream of a Christian community more than the actual people of Jesus. I've shared this song with our launch team when we were thinking about what it means to form Mercy Hill Church and the kind of community we wanted to be. Remember that, that TV series, Cheers? They had this wonderful opening song that I can just, I'm not going to sing it to you, but I don't even have to go look up the lyrics. I'm going to put them up here anyway. It begins like this. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. You may be the most introverted of introverts, but there's something within you that wants people to be glad when they see you. There's something in you that that wants people to know your name, even if you kind of want to stand off to the corners and not be the center of attention. My friends, the community of Jesus ought to be like this. Now, it's not realistic that everyone's going to know everything about your life, and you can have deep fellowship with every single person in a church community. But it is realistic that some people should. And so what would it be like, my friends, if we began to think of Sunday mornings as an opportunity where we can at least begin to embody the truth of being for one another, where our default mode is we instead of me. Wouldn't you like to be where everyone knows your name? Here's one more aspect of the status quo. Simply attending a church instead of being the church. Now, I know we've had some people come visit Mercy Hill Church, and it's, it's too small and intimate for their taste. And uh, there's, there's opportunities to, to go to a church where there's thousands of people and, and remain anonymous. And let me just say, I, I think there's a place for that. Sometimes people have gone through deep pain, and sometimes in the face of Christian community, and maybe they, they just need to go and just be around people but not have to engage at that moment. And I, I get that. But it shouldn't be the default mode of our lives where we attend church, but we're not being the church with one another. It would be tragic if Mercy Hill Church was known as a group of people who just show up on Sunday mornings and then go, but they don't really know one another. They don't really love one another. Let me just get as, as to the point as I can. You cannot become a devoted follower of Jesus apart from being devoted to his people. You may be a fan of Jesus. You may like a lot of the things he has to say. But the gospel of Jesus creates a community of Jesus that is devoted to the fellowship. And we can't be that community of Jesus if we're devoted to ourselves, first and foremost. You cannot become a devoted follower of Jesus apart from being devoted to his people. And the reason you can't is because what the New Testament tells us. Jesus died to create a community that would be known for certain things. For loving one another, serving one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another, welcoming one another, showing hospitality to one another, forgiving one another, counseling one another, honoring one another. When you read the, the New Testament documents that the early church was based upon, over and over again, 
They're being encouraged to this one another kind of life. And you can't do this stuff by yourself. You can't put into effect the new kind of, the, the new way of being human that Jesus wants for you by being isolated and just looking out for yourself. I love what Brett McCracken said in his book, Uncomfortable. It has this interesting subtitle, The Awkward and, I can't even read that, I'm just going blank on it. The, oh yeah, <laughs> The Awkward and Essential. I'm just blowing this up. Yeah, okay, here we go. The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. And in this book he said this, even though we are called to respond to the gospel on an individual level, we must resist the rampant notion that church is an optional add-on to one's solitary faith journey. In other words, we are right to emphasize that each person needs to make a personal decision about Jesus. But our faith is not a private thing. It's personal, but it's not private. And we live in a culture where your beliefs are supposed to be kept to yourself in private. But we belong to a Savior in which our faith is meant to be communal and devoted to one another. He goes on to say, too often we perpetuate an unhealthy disconnect, overlooking the fact that there is a link between being justified with respect to God the Father upon salvation and being familified with respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are justified by faith in Christ, we are also family, familyfied. <laughs> Is that how you might say it? It's a made-up word, but you get the idea. We're meant to be part of a family. So here's the question. How are we doing? I know we've had a year of social distancing, but as we come back together, as we attend church on Sunday morning, how are we doing moving toward one another and seeking to be the community of Jesus? Or to put it another way, how do you think Jesus wants you to respond to this message today? Or to put it slightly differently, what would it look like for you to be devoted to the fellowship that Jesus died to give you. Mercy Hill Church, may you follow Jesus together in such a way that it may be said that we are devoted to one another. Mm-hmm.